Artist Stories, a podcast that centers experiences of artists whose lives have left a lasting impact on Southern Arizona. I'm Jenny Sanchez. And I'm Amy Robles. And today we welcome Julio Morales, artist, curator, and executive director of Mocha Tucson. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course, thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here with you. My name is Julio Cesar Morales, and I'm an immigrant here in the United States. I moved one block from Tijuana to San Diego, specifically San Isidro, when I was about five years old. I would love to jump in and, you know, just begin talking about how you came to this moment. You know, your life's trajectory has included crossing borders, taking up space in artistic institutions. You're an artist yourself, and now you're leading of a key institution in Southern Arizona. Can you tell us more about what it was like growing up in the border? What kinds of key moments or key frames come out to you or stand out to you when thinking about how art became essential in your life? I grew up on the border, crossing the border almost on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. You know, back then, when I was a kid in the 70s, it was very easy to go back and forth. It, it's not what it is today. And, mm -hmm. you know, really, when you look at the border fence, the border fence really was um, was really non-existent. There were just, you know, um, holes. There were big sections missing of the fence. Mm -hmm. So it was a, a kinder, <laughs> more of like a kinder era in that sense before narco trafficking got really big in the 80s. Yeah. It was amazing because San Isidro was just kind of growing. We were like these explorers on our bicycles roaming around from San Isidro to Tijuana. And then we'd go skateboarding to visit my cousin in La Mesa in Tijuana, or we'd take a bus to go see a movie. You know, it was actually a really fun time as a family being connected with family, lots of cousins, and we all got along and we would spend every summer together at my abuelita's house, at my grandma's house. For some reason, all the troublemakers got to stay there for about two to three weeks okay. and they would oh, just drop wow. us off and we would, you know, we would just make Tijuana our play city. Both my families were my mother's side and my that side moved to Tijuana during Prohibition because that's when the city grew from a small rancho called Tia Juana to mm -hmm. Tijuana as a major city. And a lot of um, cities along the border during Prohibition flourished. And they had these amazing art deco buildings that are that still exist today. They had these beautiful bars and a racetrack, and it was um, an amazing time. And so a lot of people moved to Tijuana, to the border, to get work. And essentially, my family came from Guadalajara and from uh, Mazatlan. And then I went to high school. I, you know, I did all schooling in the United States. Okay. The last year of high school, we moved back to Tijuana and, you know, got to explore again coming back and forth every single day, eating breakfast in Tijuana or eating breakfast in San Isidro and then going to high school and then walking back to Tijuana. So that was sort of an adventure that one last year of high school. Around that period in the late 70s, um, there, were, there were more people coming from Central America, escaping uh, civil war and so on. And so you saw a trend of more immigrants coming from Central America and the Border Patrol got a little bit 
sort of heavier. And, you know, I, I grew up with helicopters of the Border Patrol projecting their light in my bedroom almost every day on a daily basis. You know, to this day, I figured out, oh, you know, maybe that's why I have, um, what do you call it when you can't sleep? Insomnia. Insomnia. I've always had insomnia and I always go to sleep late and that's when I work. And, you know, I think it has something to do with being woken up almost on a daily basis by Border Patrol spotlights and you know we we ended up not liking the border patrol to put it in kind words but whenever i was with my cousins in san isidro and we would see a border patrol car we would start running and they would start pacing us so we made it a game and every single time we never got caught we would just like you know like one person would lead and so every time it was someone's person to lead and they would kind of lead where we were running to, but they would start to pursue us and oh we were just gosh. kind of fucking you know? And nowadays. <laughs> were you caught? Never. Never? Never caught. <laughs> I would, but yeah. <laughs> not, it's not something I would oh, do now. Right, right. Oh. I'm so glad there <laughs> right. was never any scary moments. You, know, you hear so many horror stories now about... Border Patrol pursuing oh, yeah, definitely. people, young people especially. I find that so fascinating, Julio, that, you know, those moments of the Border Patrol shining their spotlight in your bedroom, surveilling the area, really change your circadian rhythm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. into, your, into adulthood. And I just wonder like, how many other people in, in that area, in that community, other border communities kind of face a similar circumstance. That's crazy. I feel like hearing your story, some things remind me of my own childhood, but way different. I grew up in the border, like in the early 2000s. So I didn't get to see that transition that you did. For me, it was very natural to just see a fence right in front of my house, like every day and the spotlights. How was that transition for you? Like, I, I didn't experience that until I returned after living in San Francisco and being an undergrad student at the San Francisco Art Institute, then I would see, you know, it was like the second fence being built. And then I started to see the militarization as the governor of California was more conservative. And then we had Republican presidents like Ronald Reagan. You know, I did see a, a big change when I left to when I came back. But one of the amazing things, I mean, as you're talking about growing up in the 2000s, is that Tijuana was acknowledged for their culture with the whole Nortec movement, which was amazing in Tijuana. There was artists, architects. There was a, a large movement happening, and the, the, the leader of that was music. And Nortec were being recognized like worldwide. One time, Tijuana was on the cover of Time magazine as, you know, what? one of the most cultural, interesting places you know, of what's going on in both music and arts. And, you know, Nortec is, is, you know, they're basically DJs that mix Norteño music with electronic music. They would substitute, like, in electronic music, basses everything. You know, the boom, boom, boom. And uh-huh. they would replace the bass with trombones for mariachi music. Love that. I love that. And, yeah, so they would sample, you know, mariachi music with techno music and I remember talking to Pepe Mok who was one of the founders and he said the idea for Nortec happened when I was on Revolución and if you're stand at a certain location 
you can hear the local bars playing mariachi music and with the other ear you hear the techno music coming from the tourist clubs <laughs> and so in this kind of put it together like drum and bass music electronic music and then here's the accordion here's the tuba you know uh-huh. here's el bajo and you know it was an amazing time in tijuana in the early 2000s you had artists like tanya candiani Toro Lab, you know, you had all these amazing musicians and artists kind of coming together and doing art shows and concerts. And and then all of a sudden, Nortec exploded and, you know, they would go to Europe, they would go to many electronic festivals. But it was a great time in the 2000s to be around Tijuana in regards to that, to the culture that mm-hmm. was happening and the artistic practice. That's beautiful. I love the... Uh, the game, the game of words, Norte and Tech. Exactly. <laughs> That's so smart. Oh my God, their mind, like how they got to create that movement. That's that's awesome. Yeah, Thank you for yeah. sharing that, Julio. Your upbringing, it just, it sounds so colorful, yet also like strife with militarization, weaving in and out of like the border culture so seamlessly. It just, it's so beautiful. And I know that there were creatives in your life like in the community, but also in your family. You mentioned to us that the inventor of the Caesar salad, so a culinary artist, is a part of your family. Do you want to share that story? I'll share a couple of creative family stories. Okay. One of them was my abuelito that he was so jewelry on the streets of Revolution Avenue. And Mm -hmm. so he knew everyone on that street. And there was a hotel called Cesar's that opened around Prohibition. And he became friends with the owner, one of the owners who actually were two Italian immigrants that moved to Tijuana and opened this hotel called Cesar's. And, you know, he would always share stories. And when I was at the San Francisco Art Institute, when I would come back and visit, I would always record my grandfather telling stories about the history of Tijuana at various eras. So then one day he was telling me about the day he met Al Capone. And that what? <laughs> his friend was a coat checker across the street at um, a bar called Club Unicornio. And that they wanted to eat something. And the coat girl brought over Al Capone and his friends to Cesar's kind of late. And my grandfather was still selling stuff. And he took him over to the kitchen. And, and actually, the, the chef was a woman. I can't remember the woman's name. But the chef and the owner, one of the owners of Cesar's, Al Capone, and my abuelito kind of put together this Caesar salad. Gosh. Oh, and my God. what's important about the Caesar salad is not what you think it is. It's a little bit more tangy and, and bright. You know, they use, you know, martini olives, you know, like, shitty olives uh-huh. to, to <laughs> them and be in the salad they also use olive juice they use limes which give it a brightness but it does have anchovies mm-hmm. so when you see the original sauce for the salad it's actually kind of brownish you know it's not white usually mm-hmm. you know and and i did this project a while ago called sin mayonesa and it was about the history of the caesar salad and the history of tijuana Okay. It included my uh, an interview with my grandfather. And then um, a couple of years ago, uh, the magazine Brooklyn Rail asked me to write an article on the history of the Caesar salad. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll send you something that you can upload as a PDF so you can read the my version of mm-hmm. my family's int- integration yes. with that 
with that famous recipe because during Prohibition, you had famous movie stars like Lauren Hardy, Mae West would go to Tijuana and they would go to dance. They would stay there. And everyone loved the Caesar salad that they yeah. put on the menu. And then they would take it to Hollywood and they would tell their cooks or their chefs like, hey, can you recreate something I just had in Tijuana? And then that's how the evolution of Caesar salad happened was through the translation of movie stars, which is pretty crazy. Oh, wow. <laughs> I just love this story. It's so there's a, yeah, there's a picture of my abuelito with Al Capone and these burro uh, pictures that are basically mm-hmm. tourist photographs. And that's on the cover of the uh, article that I wrote. And it's a picture that he gave me like in the 80s. That is so it, cool. <laughs> We'll definitely put that up on our on the show notes for this podcast. Yeah. And, and at the end, <laughs> it has the actual recipe. Okay. And the original recipe also calls for croutons that are basically birotes, mm-hmm. but they're soaked mm-hmm. in chorizo juice. Oh, my gosh. Que <laughs> rico. <laughs> delicacy. Yeah, it's delicious. The <laughs> other quick story about creativity and family comes from my, one of my crazy uncles who actually is my godfather, Jose Luis. So he used to live in the back of my grandmother and grandma's house. And when we would go there during the summers, one summer, he said, hey, I'm working on this project. Can you help me? And we're like, okay, what? And then we go into his his little casita in the back. And in the living room, he lifts up this carpet and there's a huge hole. And we look at each other like, well, what are you doing? He's like, <laughs> I'm making a tunnel. Oh my gosh. And you're like, I'm making a tunnel. I just want to see if I can get across the street. (gasps) And so my grandmother and grandfather's house was basically one block from the border wall. Okay. Okay. And so I remember as young kids, we would exchange our labor of helping dig this tunnel. And he would take us to see Lucha Libre. At night. Oh my gosh. <laughs> what a great trade off. So we didn't know what we were doing and we thought our uncle was crazy. And so, you know, we did it for a couple of weeks one summer. And, you know, later on as an adult, I, you know, the first tunnel found between Mexico and the United States is in Tijuana. No way. <laughs> so, anyway, I don't know if that was my uncle's or what, but he was experimenting creating. Uh-huh. And, and did it cross the border, the tunnel? After I, I don't know. We only helped okay. them dig it for, you know, we probably uh, got past the house. It takes a lot to do it, to make a tunnel. Yeah, I can imagine. And I don't know if you know this, but the first, like, El Chapo tunnel was found in Douglas. So we have a history of tunnels as well over there. Yeah. And, yeah. And, <laughs> you know, for a long time when I was doing a lot of research on, you know, informal economies in the border, they always thought that it was a myth you know, that these tunnels existed until they found the first one, which was actually, you know, not very long ago. It was like in the 2000s. So that's my other family story and (laughs) creativity. (laughs) Now we understand where you get your creativity from. (laughs) Yeah. I have a quick question. I know your second name is Cesar, right? Yeah. So it's Julio Cesar. So does it have anything to do with the Caesar Hotel or the Caesar Salad? <laughs> no, but it's just funny in a coincidence because of that. Because the main emblem when you go to Caesar Salad is a tile mosaic of of Julius Caesar. That's their icon. 
And um, no, my father loved Italian history. So he named me Julio Cesar. He named my younger brother Miguel Angel, Michelangelo. And he named my older brother um, Mark Antonio, Mark Anthony. And the only one who escaped was my sister, who has a beautiful name. Her name is Orquidia Perla, because when my father proposed to my mom, he bought pearls and put them inside an orchid. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> and they said, if we, if we have kids, this will be her name. Otherwise, she would have had an Italian name, too. Right. right. <laughs> that's so beautiful. So thoughtful and creative. Very it's, poetic, it's no? Very poetic, yeah. What a, what a wonderful environment to grow up in. Okay, Julio, we, we love to know. We're so nosy. <laughs> we want to know... Who are the people that influenced you or opened doors for you or directed you in, on some path growing up? Can you think of anybody you would like to bring into the space? Yeah, I think very early on when I was still in San Diego before I went to do the undergrad degree in San Francisco, I was going to Southwestern College, which is like a city college, you know, and also San Diego State College. And, you know, there were some pretty amazing people. I started off by um, wanting to be a designer. I always liked design. And, you know, coming from Tijuana, all the neon and really ama amazing rotulos, you know, hand-painted signs. And I always loved that. So I wanted to be a designer. And so I went to Southwest Junior College to study design. And then I took a photo class and I, and I discovered this amazing teacher named Parla Turley. And she was really amazing. And there was, you know, she had a, an amazing following from a lot of um, artists from Tijuana that would come to the college as well and study with her. And she was just really liberating and she would teach you alternative photo techniques. And so being in design, I had to take a photo class. And, and then I got really more into photo and fine arts. And then I met this guy named David Avalos who used to run, who's an amazing artist, you, you can look him up. He um, was the director of, I think it was in Balboa Park in San Diego, and it was called something like Galeria de la Raza. And, and it, was, it was a cultural center for, you know, La Raza. And he gave me my, my first show, documenting this saint of people who crossed from Tijuana to San Diego named Juan Soldado who accused of, of killing someone, and he became the patron saint of people crossing the border. So when you go to his tomb in Tijuana, which is really like two minutes from the border wall, mm -hmm. um, people bring him um, gifts, and you know they write notes like, if you help me cross the border, or if you help my family, whatever, I'll come back and I'll bring you this or that. And so he's so popular that every month they have to clean out the tomb because okay. people leave so many things there for him. And so I did a photo documentary. I was there for about a month or so, just documenting people and talking to people. And that was the exhibition I did at the, at the Cultural Center with David Avalos. And then he introduced me to someone incredibly important, which was the first Border Arts Collective called Border Arts Workshop. Yes, yeah. And so they did amazing community socially based work and it was maybe you know a collection you know of of chicano 
Mexican and and white artists, you know, and they did really phenomenal work. And so I got to meet them. And the next person that was always a big influence to me was James Luna, who passed away maybe 10 years ago. And he was a Mexican indigenous artist um, in San Diego. And I met him with David and he said, hey, I have a show at the Museum of Art why don't you come and see my work tomorrow? Mm-hmm. So then I go to see, I walk in. Okay, this is like a very pristine museum. Okay. They don't show contemporary artwork, and I'm not sure who the curator was that invited James to do a project. It's very classic. And then you, I went into the museum. You know, I saw, you know, like classic minimalist paintings and Baroque mm-hmm. and all that. And then at the end of this one gallery was James Luna, in very in just like um tonga you know like naked basically (laughs) yes and he was laying on a table and it said i think it said something like a live indian or the last live indian and he would come and perform at the space and just lay on the vitrine and not move for basically eight hours a day wow that's commitment that was my introduction to performance art and that was, you know, and he was really phenomenal. Oh, man, that's so incredible. Uh, that's, you know, you mentioned Border Arts Workshop and you know, all of these incredible art- artists are really influential to contemporary practice in general, I feel. And I, you really like, grew up among this movement. That's so exciting. Yeah, it was amazing. Amazing to see their exhibitions, you know, like their exhibitions wouldn't happen at a museum or a gallery, their exhibitions were always at, you know, places they could get, you know, like they would just like rent, rent an empty, an empty storefront or rent, you know, like a, a big, you know, space in downtown San Diego. But I got to see a couple of their exhibitions. I would love to jump into a discussion about your work as an artist. Uh, I have to let you know that my first encounter with your work was at Phoenix Art Museum during the Phantom Sightings Art After the Chicano Movement exhibition. And I have to say, when I came across your undocumented intervention series, it really was a visceral moment for me, like as a student. And I would just love if if you could talk about that. What did it mean for you and for your family and, and your community? One day when I was installing, I saw in the newspaper, there was a photograph of a Powerpuff girl, piñata, that's been ripped in half. And in the photograph, you would see two human legs of a small kid coming out of the piñata. And so that was my first reference for that series. And the more I read, the more research I did, it turned out to be exactly where I grew up in the Zona Norte in Tijuana. You know, this was a time after 9-11, so it was very different than when I grew up in the border. When we were talking earlier uh, in this interview about the militarization, it was very hard to cross the border now at that time in the early 2000s, and essentially um, it was more money to get a coyote to come across, and people were desperate because a lot of people couldn't go back and forth like they had done previously if you're working in the States and reunite with your family and come back. And essentially they're trying to reunite their families together. And that's why you saw a huge growth in 
kids being smuggled in a piñata or in various different ways into the United States because those were the most economical ways of doing that. One Christmas, we're all together in Tijuana, and, and some of my cousins became drug dealers. Some of them became policemen. My aunt was involved in trafficking, and she would tell me, you know, stories. And I asked her about the piñata and the cars, and basically all this happened, you know, where I grew up in Zona Norte. And essentially, I interviewed some people, and, you know, it would cost $500 to take out a dashboard and place a person inside the dashboard. And so I got to know some people, and that series is all from photographs from the, you know, Border Patrol of failed attempts to cross. And essentially, it's such a harsh reality to be stuck, say, in a car dashboard for six hours. And to me, the softest medium in the world is watercolors. You know, watercolors are used to do landscapes, to do something very calming in that sense. So in a way, I wanted to do something to combat that harshness and that reality of what people were going through and just illustrate that in a very simple way. And so that's how that series came about. Incredible. Thank you for sharing. Wow. That that, that exhibition and your work specifically just stays with me and just appreciate having that opportunity at that like impressionable moment in my life, like as a undergraduate student. It's like, yes, you could like permission or talk about your community. It's it's important. And so I really thank you for that. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I thank yeah. Rita Gonzalez and LACMA for taking the chance on, on her proposal for that show because before that, there really were not many people of color in museums, specifically, yeah. you know, Latinx, Chicano, you know, mm-hmm. we, we weren't being represented until right. really that was a groundbreaking exhibition right. because of that. And, you know, one of the things that I, that I don't like in, 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 you know, being now in 2023 is that all the artists in the exhibition boycotted coming to Phoenix because of our pile. And, you know, since, since being here now, I did an exhibition recently at the Phoenix Art Museum and I did a talk. Being here for more than 10 years in Arizona, now I feel if you want to protest or, or, or do something about it, you, you sometimes have to be in the belly of the beast. You know what I mean? Right, right. So part of me coming to Arizona is that, you know, coming from the Bay Area where, you know, people are very liberal. And, you know, when I wrote this note to become a curator at the AC Art Museum to the director, Gordon Knox, I wrote a letter and I said, if you want me to take this job, this is the type of work that I'm going to do. And why do I want to go from one of the most liberal cities in the world to the most oppressive? Mm-hmm. And he loved the letter and I got the mm-hmm. job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you have to be, you have to be in the jungle or in the depths of it to change things from the inside. Wow. <laughs> that was deep. Uh, thank you for sharing that, Julio. You talked a little bit about your past work and I know you use a lot of different mediums for all your work. So you talked about watercolors and how you use that for phantom sightings. Are you working on something different now? What are your plans for future projects or like a current project that you're working on? To me, I use whatever medium according to the story I want to tell. Mm-hmm. So it can range from vinyl to neon to video to sound. It just depends on the story. And so right now I'm doing a lot of work based on the music 
in the corridos of the border. Love and it. One of the pieces I'm doing is dedicated to my father's father, who was a merchant marine, and he was in Mazatlan. And he he died before my dad was 10 years old. The ship sank somewhere between San Diego and Baja. And um, we recently found some documentation of the boat that he was on. And he, for some reason, crossed the border of Nogales. And so, you know, early on around that time, they would document anyone coming across. And so it said, you know, uh, it said his name and it said Merchant Marine from Mexico going to Long Beach. And I just thought it was so strange to not go through Baja or maybe Baja wasn't able to do that because Baja ends and across is Mazatlan. Mm -hmm. And so he came from Nogales and he went all the way to Long Beach and then he got on the boat and that boat sank later on that on that cruise. And so I've been documenting the actual border fronts from Nogales to San Diego to the Pacific Ocean and doing these charcoal drawings that are basically based on on my father's father basically dying at sea. And mm-hmm. so that's one of the pieces I'm doing and, and working with a musician to create a soundtrack for that as well, sort of like a corrido. That's so fascinating, Julio, and it's so intimate. What an intimate project and very directed it's like the inspiration comes from your family and but it's actually telling a larger uh, broader uh, story about our region mm-hmm. i really appreciate that about your project and it tells the story of when the united states did invite mexico and in, you know like the bracero movement it was around this time yeah you know around world war ii where they were like hey you know instead of being anti-immigration it was pro <laughs> and come here for a couple of years and work and we'll give you these benefits. You know what I mean? Right, so right. Yeah. The backstory that is sort of like the backstory as well. That yeah. is part of this yeah. personal story. And, 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 you know, the thing is like, this has always been a mystery in our family. Okay. And until we saw that document that he actually crossed through Nogales, no one, no one knew that journey mm-hmm. and no one, no one specifically knows when that ship went down, they can't find the ship, things like that. Wow. Well, I hope you, you can uncover some of that history and, you know, just like fill the holes, provide yeah. maybe a small, small amount of closure. That's really incredible. Doing research is so important for an artist. And I know you mentioned that to be an artist, you have to be like a journalist, right? You have to look, go through all these archives. And you have done projects about archiving, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, you know, a lot of that was an influence by a mentor I had when I was at the San Francisco Art Institute with a uh, Filipino-American artist named Carlos Villa. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's just getting recognized now after, you know, he's he's passed away about 10 years ago, but essentially, you know, his work is being recognized now. But um, I, I worked on a project with him called Worlds in Collision, that really was about being multidisciplinary, um, multicultural. And so he wrote this book about it and he would teach a course. And I was lucky enough to actually teach the last class with him together before he passed away. And, you know, I learned a lot from, from you know, his, his own um, scholarship as an artist. And he, you know, kind of coined a, a term called street scholarship. 
So he would say, Julio, you're never going to find what you're looking for in a book. Specifically, <laughs> any artists of color, their stories are not really being told right now. And, you know, he was telling me this in the late 90s. And essentially, you have to do street scholarship. You have to go out. You have to be a journalist. You have to do your own research. You have to have your own archive. Mm-hmm. And so I do have an archive of things related to the border, you know, a thousand images, a ton of articles. And, you know, when you're in school, you're not really taught that. You're not taught to be, for the most part, you're not taught to be outside of your studio. You're stuck in your studio. Your studio is a prison. Only a certain percent of people, very little, can make their living from their art. You have to learn how to embed your artistic practice into community, into other areas. Um, that matter, that that need art, that can help shape and, and change things. And so that's one of the reasons why I became a teacher um, as well as an artist is that I, you know, I have, I have many experiences that I need to pass on. I need to mentor people, um, yeah. you know, and, and the same thing with my curatorial practice and being at MOCA now, you know, we're all about telling stories that are usually not told. Yeah, I, I think this is a perfect segue into talking about your work at MOCA. You you are now the executive director. And what is that like? <laughs> what is what is a day in the life of Julio Morales, executive director of MOCA Tucson? Well, you know, I spent 10 years at ASU Art Museum as right. a senior curator. I curated more than 50 shows. I did all this work to kind of reshape the museum and the kind of work the museum was doing to have more of a social practice Mm -hmm. and socially embedded um, programming. And so the reason I fell in love with MOCA is because it reminded me of when I was in San Francisco, um, I actually had an artist run space called Queen's Nails next to a a real nail shop called Queen's Nails. I just stole their name Mm -hmm. and added it to it. (laughs) that the big sign they had. And so I had that for nine years until I moved here. And, you know, I, I did that because there was, because of gentrification, there was no more artist run spaces in San Francisco that I, I really benefited from after graduating from school. Mm-hmm. And so I started this space and it just took off and became very well known. And then all of a sudden I was getting offers to curate shows all over the world because of that. And, you know, I had 12 jobs in San Francisco for oh 10 years. You know, wow. I, had I had, I'm sorry, I had five jobs. And and then I'm like, well, maybe I should go to Arizona. And, and uh-huh. you know, maybe if they're willing to, to accept this kind of work that I want to focus on, I think, I think I would do it. So I moved here. And, you know, 10 years after ASU, I kind of felt like I needed to, to a shift. And um, mm-hmm. Mocha Tucson started as an artist run space as well. Right, right. So there is this trajectory of the space. And, and Laura Copeland has been doing some phenomenal curatorial work there. And, and um, we just started talking. And, and essentially, I said, well, I, can, I, I, I would like to do this job if we can sort of co-lead it. So I'm co-leading the space mm-hmm. with Laura. And essentially... We have a crazy, beautiful idea of the future and what a, a future museum in Arizona can look like and how that can be embedded in community more and hosting other 
nonprofits and, and socially based organizations working together as a residency. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you more about that when it happens, but that's one of the tra- trajectories that we're looking at. But essentially a day in Mocha is, you know, I'm still living in Chandler for now. Mm-hmm. And essentially the day starts, I'm at Tucson three days a week. And I actually, you know, wake up in the morning. I have yogurt with some berries mm-hmm. and I have some coffee to go and some mineral water. I always make a playlist for every week. And because it's an hour and 15 minutes without traffic. Mm-hmm. And I always take the long way to get to Tucson because I love seeing the landscape as you're driving early in the morning. So then I get there and it depends on the day and what's happening. But the most busy day is always on Wednesdays when Laura and I have basically breakfast with our board members, two board members that are the, pre- the co-presidents. And we talk about the arts, we talk about fundraising, we talk about exhibitions, and, you know, it's a really great day. And then we have a ton of meetings, and we have our staff meeting. And, you know, we have some pretty phenomenal shows up right now with Cecilia Vicuña, Mm -hmm. Raven Chacon, and, you know, people I've always admired. And so to work with people you've always admired, and also we commission everything at MOCA, essentially. So we're helping nurture artists' careers, whether they're emerging, mid-career, or someone more established like uh, Cecilia. Right. And, you know, and I love, you know, it's an old fire station, so it's funky. Absolutely. It's really cool, (laughs) you know, and so I love kind of walking around there, and, you know, I can feel there's some other spirits there as well. Okay. And so there's three floors, so I usually wander around um, the floors depending on the meeting, and sometimes I like to have a meeting in a different place other than an office. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, that's sort of like a, a daily kind of thing. And, you know, we get really excited about the future and all the grants we're applying for, all the artists that we're going to be working with. We have an amazing exhibition tentatively called New Frequencies that will open in 2024 that is dedicated to female experimental sound musicians mm-hmm. so we so we're working on that and so we're really excited and you know it's a really amazing small institution and everyone who works there um they're really pretty much on top of their game you know we cue off each other and so in a way i don't feel like hey i'm the boss in that sense you know it's more <laughs> it's more a communal thing like okay what can we make happen or you know what yeah what, how can we get this funding for the show or how can we you know go to that next level and so mm-hmm. we're all moving together you know we're all yeah. climbing together so there's no hierarchy in that sense other than just the title right. but everyone mm-hmm. you know works in amazingly well together and you know i think um i think it's going well and um if everything goes to what we're thinking for the future i think you know people will be looking at us um art wise from other cities you know whenever i go and do a lecture in another city i always talk about off center you know how we are in arizona are off center but we're doing amazing projects with like cecilia with raven with all these amazing artists that are invested in arizona in the fucked up history of arizona and mm-hmm. in, in the future, <laughs> amazing future that can happen and so we're bringing artists you know to the southwest and so off center can be detroit it can be chicago it can be you know places that are not la new york but basically 
what we're doing here and how we're cultivating culture and bringing artists here is really changing what the Southwest is. That is amazing. We love, we love Mocha. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your day with us. And I don't know, your life is so interesting, Julio. It's like, I feel like I'm watching a movie right now. <laughs> and so I think Janae know what time it is. And it's time for random questions. Oh, okay. I love that. <laughs> so the random question of this episode is, let's say that you partner with, I don't know, HBO or Netflix or something, and they want to do something about your life. What would you want it to be? Would it be a documentary, a sitcom, a soap opera, a movie? What? How, how would you like to represent your life? As a music video. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's cool. You know, like I, I, you know, I grew up with, you know, of course, like MTV kind of stuff. But, you know, in, in my own artwork, I, I also play music and I do soundtracks for the videos. But in essence, you know, I love how time can shrink, you know, how time is condensed in, in three minutes or an amazing mm -hmm. song that changes your life, that you remember, you remember the lyrics for the rest of your life and that in moments you reach out to that song and those lyrics and it, it, it and it helps you through your day you know what i mean so i, I would want something yeah. like music inspirational not hokey you know <laughs> sort of um collaboration with with really amazing musicians and directors and storytellers you know and i think If I can say one thing, and you know, and I got this from from my abuelito, was basically I tell stories. You know, my work tells stories about yeah. personal and larger community, but to me, it's about storytelling. Great. And mm -hmm. so that I would do a storytelling music video, I suppose. I love it. And what would the genre be like? The music genre. Oh my God! Come on. Um, <laughs> I would, I would start off with some mambo and go into some cumbia, to some electronic rock, to some corridos, into like isolated ambient sounds. I love it. Border yeah. aesthetic. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, fronterizo <laughs> aesthetics. Exactly. That's, that's what it should be called. <laughs> Thank you so much for answering my random question. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Thank you. Well, Julio, I think we've come to the end of the podcast. Just want to share gratitude for, for coming on and sharing your stories. They're super inspiring. I wish we had time for like multiple. This could be a series, Julio Morales <laughs> podcast yeah. series. There's so many wonderful anecdotes and lessons. And uh, just want to thank you for spending time with us. Well, I mean, thank you both for creating such a really cool program. You know, I can't wait to hear more. This has been Artist Stories featuring the stories of artists and arts organizations in our region. To listen to more podcasts, visit kxci.org. Artist Stories is a project of the Arts Foundation for Tucson and Southern Arizona, which is partially funded by the City of Tucson and Pima County. Additional music was provided by Julio Morales. <laughs>